It is great to be here. It's always great to come back to the church that you were raised in. Um, um, uh, to be honest, I don't really know how to open up what God has laid on my heart. Uh, I do want to say this, though, and it's not to sound authoritative or egotistical at all. Um, but many of us know uh, when the Apostle Paul tells... Um, the women, I believe it was in the church of Corinth. I was just thinking of this as I was sitting down back there. Um, but many of us know the historical context of why the Apostle Paul tells the women in the church of Corinth, I believe it was, to keep silent. It wasn't him telling them, literally, just don't preach ever. Uh, he's not denouncing women in ministry. Uh, what the Apostle Paul is, the historical context to that scripture is that the women uh, in particular uh, were shouting random stuff during church and it was disruptive to service um, and the Apostle Paul just kind of hammered down on that and told them and when the when he tells the women he's telling everybody to keep silent so I'm not trying to be again I'm not trying to put myself on a high pedestal I'm just asking um, and I've never really had to say this either, so just bear with me. I'm just asking that as this sermon is being delivered, that nobody just randomly yells something as I'm preaching. And again, I, I, know, I know that sounds awkward. Uh, I kind of cringe having to say it. But out of respect to the Word of God, that, that is the biblical approach to any message, really. And... The thing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that I heard someone put it like this. If you put the Holy Spirit on a time clock, he'll jump right off because the Holy Spirit ministers through all of God's people one way or another. And I want to thank Sister Jan for that teaching this morning in Sunday school. It was totally spirit led and it's actually sort of what I'm going to be dealing with today. She touched on sin and I'm going to be kind of talking about the heart of man this morning. And she, she brought up, you know, snake handling, which I think is a perfect illustration of how man in and of himself responds to the things that God tells us. God tells us that a serpent will not harm you. So man's response is to pick up the serpent. You know, it's not anointing, it's stupidity to go down that road. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John. The book of John is where I'm going to be reading from, chapter 18. John chapter 18, I'm going to start at verse 4. And when you get there, say Amen. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And answered him, Jesus, and they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore, if, 
If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I don't think that's how you pronounce it. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me. Shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to come into your house to worship you and to receive from your word. We ask that you minister to our hearts this morning, God, that you be the one who preaches directly to each of us, myself included, that you edify us from your word, and that you bring us all something out of this message, God. We ask that we receive a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What um, many of us know the context of this passage of Scripture as well. Uh, Jesus was just finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what I want us to remember is the statement in his prayer in Gethsemane, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then Jesus proceeds to tell the Father as he's praying, but Father, not my will, but your will be done, just to paraphrase. And Peter, in this text, as Peter cuts off the Roman's ear, Jesus' response to that is to put the sword into your sheath, the cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And I kind of do want to talk about that cup, but before I, I talk about that, I want to really just say something. Um, the more I hear uh, sermons in general, even in places where you'd think it couldn't happen, um, there is a centrality in Scripture, and a lot of people like to use the Bible as a type of emotional therapy, as a type of therapeutic thing for somebody's emotions. And what they're really doing is they make the Bible about you, and they make the Bible about me. Um, many instinctively make the Bible about us. I'm sure somebody could... Uh, I used to think this way, actually, believe it or not, when I read about Peter uh, defending Jesus... I used to think that, oh, that's a righteous man right there. He's defending Jesus from the Romans. And then it hit me. He already knows that Jesus has to die. He, doesn't, he might not know exactly why Jesus has to die, but he knows who Jesus is and that it's the Father's will for Jesus to die. And the more I prayed about that, the more I thought about it. Um, this text is not about Peter. It's about Jesus. Um, make no mistake that this is not a gospel that man 
has given us, but that God has given us. And make no mistake that God is the star of the gospel that he wrote. And that is something we really have to remember. Because man longs to be the hero of this story. Not just any story, this story in particular. In and of ourselves, we have to be what the universe floats around in this book. We have to be the center of everything. To us, at first glance, the book of Exodus has to be about Moses. And the book of Acts, the epistles, have to be about Paul. And we can miss the message in literally all of this because the Bible is about God. Um, Genesis chapter 3, we know what happens. The serpent offers Eve the forbidden fruit. And his exact words uh, when he offers her the fruit are, Surely you will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to dissect that dialogue just for a second. Uh, Satan gives us promises. Satan promises us a lot of things. He promises Eve a few things, and the scary part about it is that some of the stuff he promises her are true promises, but the way he delivers the promises to Eve are not the way that they're meant to be presented. Um, he tells her, and this is just a straight-up lie, but let's, let's just kind of go through this. First thing he tells Eve is, you will not die. She takes the fruit, and Adam takes the fruit, and then God curses Adam and Eve with death in verse 10 of that chapter god tells them by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return satan tells eve your eyes will be open now according to verse 7 their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves join coverings Jesus says to the lukewarm Christians of the Laodicean church in Revelation 3.17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and, miser and then Jesus goes on to describe who they really are, and miserable and, and poor and blind and naked. What they are is naked in their sin. Now, this is the promise that Satan tells not just Adam and Eve, but literally everybody in one way or another, you will be like God. And Satan tells us all that in one way or another because that is what the flesh wants. Satan tells her, you will know good from evil. And ironically, we know this moment of Scripture as the fall of man. Um, I've heard a few people preach from... Genesis chapter 3, and some of you might be familiar with this phrase that when Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit and the fall of man happened, they'll, some, some have said that this is when sin crept into the world. Um, yeah, there, there's truth to that, um, but that's not really, to put it bluntly, what happens, because what happens is at the first glance of defying God, man literally lunged at the chance instinctively this is adam and eve we're talking about and all it took was satan to tell them you'll be like god 
And they knew who God was. God was the only one that they knew. And Satan told them, you will be like God. You would think that they knew that they could never be like God. But this is what man wants. Because the goal is... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, Sin did not creep, creep, just sneak up and attack man. But man just joined himself with sin like really like a prostitute, like a harlot. Um, let's see. Psalms 51.10. Uh, see, the broken, sinful heart of man should not come as a shock to anybody because the psalmist says in that verse, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He knows what he needs, and he knows who can give that to him. Um, man wants to be greater than God. Notice how it was after Eve was told that she would be like God, then she took the fruit. Satan's ultimate aim isn't just to drag us to hell per se, but to dethrone Christ in any means necessary. Now he cannot dethrone Christ physically, but to the individual person who has fallen, Christ can be dethroned spiritually. The goal of man in and of himself is to go against the things of God. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And another translation says desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That's saying the heart is literally so wicked in and of itself and so against the things of God and against God himself. It's beyond understanding how wicked man's heart is. It's that crazy. And for this reason, we need the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. We are not the heroes of the Bible, but instead, really, we lean more towards being the villains. Jesus must completely get rid of us in order to give us all of him. John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He has to become greater in my life But not only that, I have to become so small. It's like all I can see in my life is Jesus. It's not mostly Jesus and some of me. If you want to satisfy God, God has to completely see Jesus. Um, Turn to Matthew 26, verse 49. It's It's the same thing that we just read, but there's more to it in this passage. Matthew 26, verse 49. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him, talking about Judas. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand, this is Peter, and drew his sword and struck a servant on the high priest of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they had take Hold up, for all that for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I can that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? 
Peter was a zealot. And what a zealot was in this culture, in this day and age, was somebody that absolutely hated the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was like the top dog in the world, as everyone knows. And they had swept through Jerusalem, and they had taken Jerusalem at this point. And zealots were a group of rebels, per se. And Simon Peter was a zealot. And what zealots did is that they always had this little, I guess you could say, sheath around their ankles, and they would have a knife in the, in the sheath. So that way, in case a little uproar or uprising ever happened, they, they would take out the knife and begin to fight the Romans. They were ready to fight Rome at all times because they hated Rome with a flaming passion. And um, so what Peter is doing here really isn't, shouldn't be shocking because it's in his nature to, to do this. It's really a desire of his to want to attack a Roman guard. And that being said, you know, he cuts off the ear. And I've heard some people say it, and I agree. I don't, I, I feel like he wasn't aiming for the ear. It's so easy to believe that Peter wanted to straight up kill this man that was laying hands on Jesus. The disciples know at this point that Jesus has to die. However, they still have yet to receive the Holy Spirit, which means that they are still really stuck with their own heart. What Peter is doing is attempted murder, which means that he is willing to kill a man in order to keep Christ to himself. What Peter is failing to see is that Christ is for all people, Peter included. What Peter is doing here is pure flesh. Eve gave in when the serpent told her that she'd be like God. The same should be said for Adam. Peter felt the need to protect Christ. Peter felt like he was in a true position that he could defend Jesus, not knowing that Christ was the one protecting not just him, but everybody. Um, now, this is interesting, and this is, um, what is Jesus protecting them from exactly? Because he's not really, I mean, really he is, in a sense, protecting them from Rome, but that's not the big it's not really the big deal. The Roman Empire isn't the greatest threat that man has ever dealt with. The Roman Empire is extinct. But Isaiah 53.10 sums it up pretty flawlessly. Because I hear people say, and it's true, that our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. That is true. But Isaiah 53, which is the greatest presentation of the gospel in the Old Testament... Uh, many would say at least. Verse 10, it starts off with this. This isn't the whole verse, but it starts off with this statement that is so profound, talking about Jesus. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Him is Jesus. For those of us who are not living under grace, what we do is we are living under law and the truth of the matter of the law of God is that it is just as perfect and it is just as holy as God himself is and for that reason alone man cannot keep the law of God flawlessly especially in and of himself 
And the wrath of God waits for those for that reason alone, because man is not man is sinful. If anything, the law of God exposes the sin that you are already guilty of. Those do's and don'ts, you've already done them, is the truth of the matter. And the wrath of God, and you know, this isn't, I understand this isn't like, this isn't like the happy half of the gospel, I understand that, but we can't just pretend that the God of wrath has retired, because the wrath of God, in one way or another, waits for those who choose to live under law really like a predator i mean god is just it's not that god is a child and he just waits to pour out his wrath on people but he is a just god and you know his wrath and those who think that they can live under law it's like throwing a magnet to a refrigerator it sticks um and it says here the lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. Hell is scary. Hell is a scary reality, but Jesus was protecting us from the wrath of God. Have you ever thought about what was in that cup that Jesus prayed would pass from him? People say that it was our sins. Well, if Jesus is pleading with his father to let that cup pass from him, that is like saying that our sins are stronger than Jesus. I mean, Jesus is bigger than our sins. But we need to remind ourselves that Jesus took the penalty for our sins. And that penalty is the wrath of God. This is the thing. Suddenly, when you begin to think about this, when Jesus says, Father, why have you forsaken me? It's not just a thing that is just said. Because for that one point in history, God looked at the only one who ever kept his law flawlessly like he broke every commandment. And all of the wrath, that was supposed to fall on you and me, all of that wrath, not just for one individual person, but all of the wrath for all of mankind was poured on the head of Jesus Christ. That is the brutality of the cross. I used to look at, you know, pictures, romantic pictures from the, uh, from the romance era, man. And we see Jesus on the cross and he's bleeding. You watch Passion of the Christ and you see all of the physical infliction and you think, man, that's brutal. And I heard, I heard people say that uh, Passion of the Christ, that movie that they say came very close to depicting the physical suffering of Jesus. I've heard people say that that movie may not even come as close as we think it does to what he really looked like. One of the prophets of old prophesied that when he was on the cross, he didn't even look like a man. So really he was butchered physically. And to think that that's not even the worst of it, because I'm not going to lie, I used to think about this before I, before I got saved and even after I, even after, for a while after I got saved, I would think about the physical infliction that Jesus had to endure while on the cross. And I would, I, this is what I honestly thought. I thought, man, that's brutal. That's brutal. But, you know, there are 7 billion, nearing 8 billion people in the world right now on top of everybody who's ever lived in human history. I mean, I'm, I'm sure somebody must have had a worse death than this. Somebody, at least one person. And then I came around to that verse in Isaiah 53, and suddenly it makes sense. No man has ever died a worse death than Jesus Christ because the crown of thorns crushing his scalp, the nails through his hands and his feet, that is just one thing. 
the true brutality of the cross is in what we cannot see and what is not described to us as it happens because it would be so beyond our comprehension just to imagine that the Father loves us so much that He is willing to put His own Son in the place of us, not just in suffering physically, but all of His godly and righteous wrath He puts on Jesus Christ this is the grace of God, because I can tell you right now what Jesus did for you, what the Father gave you, who the Father gave you, you do not deserve that. I do not deserve that. Uh, I'll try to finish. I don't, I don't have that much left. See, man is so fallen and wicked, totally bent against God. The only one God can be pleased with is Jesus. Jesus is the only man who has measured up to God's measure of perfection, which is the law. And that means when God sees us, in order for him to be pleased with us, he must see Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. Galatians 1, 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul says, but when God, who has set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. There's that phrase, was pleased to reveal his son in me. The Roman guard did not deserve the grace of Jesus, yet we see Jesus heal him before that same guard takes our Lord ultimately to Calvary. That is the gospel right there, that one little moment in a nutshell. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, and I'm going to close in prayer after this. This is my conclusion, and Brother Roger can come back up, and if he, if he feels that he can give an altar call for prayer, if anybody wants it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, again, the Apostle Paul writing, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we feel your presence in this place. And that alone is evidence that you have given us all the word, myself included, from your word. We ask that, we, that you have this message that you've given us stick to us, not just throughout this week, but as long as we live. God, our gifts and our talents we will leave here on earth, but our testimony of you saving us, that is the testimony we will carry with us into heaven. And we can never be thankful enough with anything we do or anything we say, knowing that Jesus has saved us not just from hell, but from the wrath of God, which we deserve. And knowing that God, that you looked at your only son, on Calvary as though he had committed every sin in our place. We know that Jesus was never a sinner and he never shall be a sinner. But God, knowing that you have 
you have taken that wrath from us, those of us who truly deserve it, and placed it on the one who has not deserved any of it. It is grace beyond our comprehension, and we can never thank you enough. Continue to minister this word to us, God, as long as we live, because this is the gospel, and only a fool would ever consider this an old doctrine or an old message. We pray that you be with us all throughout our day and that you continue to minister to us from your word, God, and that you continue to comfort us with these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.